We're joined this week by Dr. Cody Dahl, the Vice President of Acquisitions and Strategy. Nice title. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks. Hey, talk about the company a little bit. What do you all do? Sure. Agus Capital. Um, we are an investment management firm that uh, we invest in permanent cropland for institutional investors. So think, um, you know, our, our think public pension plans, teachers, uh, pension plans of, of pick a state and um, we get allocations from them. Separate accounts is typically what we do. And uh, they would give us a hundred million dollars, let's say, give or take. And we go out and invest that in a portfolio of permanent cropland, uh, just like they would allocate money to kind of a stock and bond manager. And so they would, we, we buy the land uh, kind of based off of our investment theses that we have at the time. And uh, we manage the farmland um, and then at harvest, we, 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 we harvest and then cut them a check, um, hopefully, uh, turn them back some cash. And so they've got kind of an asset class um, that we can uh, provide access to. All right. So you grew up in central Illinois. How'd you get yes. from there to here? I mean, it, it seems like another uh, a lifetime ago. I, um, I, I went to the University of Illinois for my undergraduate. I loved it. Um, corn and soybeans, uh, were, were about, you know, the mainstream of, of central Illinois, um, main topics of discussion. And I, I kind of wanted to get out into more markets and, and learn a little bit more about other pricing dynamics and, and whatnot. And so it was either California or Florida and Florida had this master's of agribusiness program. And I chose Florida cause they gave me some money to go to school. And uh, that's always I, good. <laughs> yeah, I wound up switching into um, the PhD track after my first semester and graduated there. And I was going to go teach. Um, but I, while I was. And your dad was a professor, right? Yeah, my dad was a professor at the University of Illinois in the College of Agriculture. He was in communications. Um, so, yeah, he made, I, at one point in time, I wasn't even going to go to school. And he basically said, well, then you're on your own. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he cut me off and or, or threatened to and said, or you can go to this junior college in Kiwani, Illinois, on a horse judging scholarship. And uh, I wound up thinking that through and, and wound up going to junior college on uh, because he he basically made me. But uh, best move I ever did. But uh, I mean, there was a reason for it back then, too. I mean, you're a horse guy. You love horses, right? Yeah, I, I, I actually had the opportunity to work for some world class horse trainers um in central illinois and in missouri um who now are kind of the at, at, at the premier stage of the american quarter horse western pleasure um circuits cole baker um, and mike tibley two two horse trainers that i i worked for growing up and that's what i wanted to be i was making 500 dollars a week get my gas paid for and uh what else could you ask for when you're 18. exactly yeah <laughs> Thankfully, dad said dad showed up after I told him I wasn't going to go to school. He drove eight hours down to Missouri and said, well, I'm going to need those keys back for that truck that I I bought you. Or you can go to school. That's that's the short story. What happened? And uh, I wound that, up going. That, that choice became a little more easy, a little easier for you, didn't it? A little more black yes. and white. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. So you've one of the things I really wanted to get into with you is what you watch you know, kind of on a broader sense and a couple of trends that we've heard a lot of, no matter what 
you do for a living these days since COVID hit us, folks have heard about supply chain, right? That is, you know, now people who are in the thick of it have been dealing this their whole careers, but for most people, they just knew that they went to the grocery store and stuff that they used to rely on was not there, or maybe they needed something for the car, they needed something for the office, for the house, for church, whatever the heck it was, it just was no longer available when so much stuff was shut down. And so from a broader view, maybe just thinking more specifically in the in the ag sector, how are we? What's the are there permanent changes to supply chains? I mean, where are we? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there are definitely some ripple effects. Um, you know, the adoption of uh, online, you know, your local grocery store delivery that's you know been adopted and that has implications i think for fresh fruits if uh the person that's picking your stuff doesn't necessarily get the best product you know you may not be a repeat uh consumer there um but i think i think um i think some of the the main challenges are temporary in terms of the commodity markets so when, when in, in my space with permanent crops you're thinking about um walnuts almonds, pistachios, um, to lesser, you know, it's less commoditized, but you still have apples and cherries and pears. Um, so I think, I think those avenues have kind of adapted, but we still have got these hiccups. You know, you had COVID in 2020 and then, uh, you know, and prior to that, by the way, we had the, the tariffs that came in, the countervailing duties. So that kind of, you know, how do, how do we circum, not circumvent, but you had some trade flow diversions that occurred because of those. And so no, you know, the, the supply chains are no longer optimally traded because of those tariffs. Then you have COVID, which um, kind of shocked demand in some, some regards, positive and, and negative and depending on consumer products. And then we had the kind of the Russian uh, and Ukraine conflict, um, which certainly impacted input pricing for a lot of agriculture foods uh, production, excuse me, um, pesticide, or excuse me, um, fertilizers. fertilizers. Yep. Um, and now we've got kind of um, the implication with uh, with with the with the Middle East and uh, Israel and Gaza, and um, you know, just kind of general um, tension, I would say, internationally between you know some major nation states that. Um, has impacted who they've, you know, China in particular, impacted who they've done business with. So I think, you know, you, you COVID itself had had some, um, you know, definitely had some impacts in our industry. Ending stocks went up for a lot of production. Happened to be, 2020 happened to be a really big year for a lot of, uh, you know, the nut space, let's say. Um, but then you've had these reoccurring um, challenges let's say, and on the backdrop of that, you've got these tariffs, so. And, and I feel with su the supply chain, I mean, some of it was maybe temporary with consumer consumer shifts when it, when most people are staying at home for a while. Remember for a while you couldn't get ketchup packets, right? Like yeah. there are certain things like that because for the restaurants they were able to stay open, everything's to go. Yeah. So, you know, you need it. There are just certain things that you needed differently that it, that were involved in delivery 
we ordered a lot more stuff online. So we needed a lot of cardboard boxes and such, right? Shipping containers. And so some of it may have been an adjustment. And then of, uh, of course that puts particular strains as we've made it, we made that switch. So nobody's eating in restaurants and then people started going back to restaurants. So then we had to shift back. And I know yeah. that's just one side, but I mean, there are, it's just a constant adjustment, adjustment, adjustment. Um, man, your, uh, your response here, you kind of tapped on so many, so many hot button things, but I wonder maybe do, how about we just drill into nuts a little bit because they've been through, there are so many of these factors are just hammering that industry, right? Yeah. And as you look at that, I mean, if some of this going to be permit, you're going to have some of these folks in California are just going to bail out on the business, right? Well, I don't know about, I don't know about that. I, I think, I think because uh, to be clear, we've been kind of in a, in a, in a, temporary downturn since 2020 in terms of returns when you look at performance. Um, and there may be, you know, a lot of folks that are in that age range where it's like, do, do I want to weather this out or, or, you know, put, put the farm up. For and all of this is dependent upon whether they've got kind of a next generation to take over. But as you know, um, in agriculture, the next generation, uh, they're not a lot of times they're not sticking around so um we're seeing kind of transitioning happening right now um because it, it has it's been you know 2020 since 2020 permanent crop returns have been less than stellar so and maybe maybe let's go ahead and dive into that a little bit because that's kind of a flip right um where the the trend lines have almost reversed what's going on there uh, with per in terms of permanent crops or relative mm -hmm. to row crops? Uh, permanent. Yeah. So for a, a long time, I would say we were kind of, you had this, you had this growth coming out of China and, and in general, it was kind of lifting up, uh, you know, economic growth throughout the world. Um, and so you had kind of demand for nuts and, 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 uh, other, other commodities rising. And um, in California, we uh, we planted. We, we kind of you know had this period where um, maybe the supply wasn't catching or wasn't keeping pace with demand. And then you you know it may be not even demand, but like when the dollar drops, the relative value of the dollar falls. Foreign consumers can purchase more U.S. goods relative to what they could have you know if it hadn't fallen. And so prices have to rise to kind of, uh, you know, ration demand. And we had a period recently from about 2000 and I think nine to 2015, where the dollar kind of just broadly fell in value. And um, we we're coming out of global financial crisis. And, and um, you know, again, economic growth was occurring and prices just shot through the roof for uh, you know, you look at you look at almonds and um, uh, pistachios and walnuts and um, windfall gains in many instances between the for those years and farmers and investors alike kind of plowed that capital back into almonds, walnuts and and uh, pistachios. And so, you know, during that period, let's say 2010 to 2016, that growth is now coming into production. Uh, you know, since 2020, depending on the commodity. Because it takes but, a while. Yeah, it takes a while to grow. We don't get 
permanent crops, you don't get a crop until, uh, you know, they mature. Um, almonds could be maybe your first crop in the fifth year, um, a small light, light, light crop. Walnuts is going to be a little bit later. Pistachios could be the eighth year, you know. Um, so you make these planting decisions in kind of one set of, under one set of circumstances, and then it's like a, a regime change in another. Mm -hmm. And regime changes, now you, you know, you have higher tariffs in China, you have uh, a stronger dollar, considerably stronger dollar, and you have these supply chain kinks that you were just talking about where maybe the ports are on strike or the containers that are bringing, being brought in are shipping back to China empty because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're paying people to do that. And, and so just a whole other different set of circumstances. So you have more supply that's harder to, to get to market uh, that is more costly to foreign consumers. And by the way, we export, you know, 60% plus of all these nuts. Um, so, you know, the, the, the value of the dollar matters. And, and we can't absorb that. Not domestically. I mean, we would, we would stockpile. Um, you know, I wish we could, I wish, wish everybody was out there eating more almonds and, and pistachios. I, I know I've got a couple bags of, of walnuts around here that I, I try and snack on and do my Doing walnuts. your part. <laughs> so, so as, as, as you look ahead, um, you know, some of these, some of these tariffs started in the Trump years, uh, Biden continued some of them. Trump was talking about if he gets back in, they're going to be bigger than what they were when he was in the first time. So, in light of the fact that so much of the well-being of these folks is dependent on the export market, what is the what could that mean for their future? Uh, well, a lot. Um, you know, we we have kind of normalized ties with India, um, and I guess we're focusing on nuts right now. So they've lowered their almond uh, tariffs back to kind of what they were before mm -hmm. they imposed countervailing duties. And that's a large growth market for us. Um, you know, it, it, the higher tariffs would be, it, it just would kind of, again, reduce the, what, what foreign, foreign folks can pay for domestic products and keep more consumer or more, more commodity domestically, which would satiate the market even more and uh, just have a overall lower price, you know, downward pressure on prices until you have kind of a, a supply response where, Folks are going to take if you know if these are if these commodities are these plants are no longer the highest value on a couple parcels of ground they're going to take them out of production and do something else. Um, so as all that equilibrates, um, you've got you know a kind of an intermittent period where you don't have very good returns, and that's what we've had you know since 2020. Again, going back to the regime change, we're in a different. So now you're talking about extending it going forward. Um, and that would have, I would think that if if there there were countervailing duties that were impressed upon us by, you know, major export countries, um, even more than what they had previously, have a major impact on our on our crops. Major. I, I feel like listening to you and some of these things you're talking about, and you know, and again, we're focusing a lot on nuts, but because you can't, you're looking at five to eight years out in a lot of these cases. So you're making decisions, looking way down the line. You have no way of of projecting that Russia is going to attack Ukraine or what all these other things you're talking about, a trade war or whatever the heck. So how, how does a person in that, 
in that realm make those kind of long-term projections? Great question. It is. It has been exceedingly difficult the last couple of years uh, to kind of foresee what some of these events, even their impacts would be. Um, but you, you do have kind of immediacy in, in the next year, let's say. You kind of see what, what supply and demand are, uh, what kind of shipments have been doing for certain countries, and then what your domestic production is. So you might have that for the first year. And in the second year, you've kind of got... Um, you know, an understanding of what domestic stock ending stocks are going to be. And you add that kind of with looking at changes in um, plantings for, for different crops, maybe make some inferences about what production will be thereafter. And then you kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, you do kind of want to have uh, some implications, some understanding of what exchange rates have on prices and an understanding that, you know, we are in a very high, strong dollar situation that when you talk about mean reversion it back to maybe a normal level, uh, that would bring the dollar down low. If it was during 2012, I would talk about a mean reversion. And so you have kind of these ebbs and flows that you need to make sure that you're tempering your price forecasts. Um, I would also say that in my space in particular, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is legislation that was passed in 2014. That also has very um, uh, big implications for for plantings and what. And again, we're talking California. Yeah, we're just talking California here, um, but the state has effectively come in and said had in 2014. The the water that we're pumping out of the ground is not sustainable. Um, aquifer levels are dropping. You're having concentration of nitrates. Uh, domestic wells are going dry and we're going to stop this. We're So they set a plan up where everybody kind of gets together, forms their own kind of regional group and makes kind of a water budget, an accounting of, of what their water resources are and then what their water demand is going to be. And the state has effectively said by 2040, that's the, that's the year that uh, they want everything to be in equilibrium. So whatever you pull out of the ground, is what gets recharged into the ground. And, um, you know, everybody was supposed to kind of submit their plans in 2020 or 2022, depending on the status of their uh, groundwater basins um, and get approval for that. There's still some hiccups going on right now with uh, some folks in the Southern counties, because, you know, while you can pick your own group and do your own accounting budget, you can't for, for you know, supply and demand, you can't double count supply with your neighbor. And so there's been some arguments, uh, you know, some some misunderstandings. And, and so folks have got to collectively work together to get these things done. And the alternative is, and going back to game theory, the state has said, if you don't do it, we'll do it. And we'll just mm -hmm. you know, turn off the spigot. So go do what you can. And there's kind of a, let's see if I can do this right. There's a, there's a glide path where if you've got, you know, the kind of your aquifer levels here, and then your aquifer levels out here that the state has approved, you need to kind of show what that glide path is going to be. Okay. And, and we started off in 2020, 2021 with some droughts and maybe we went, you know, some folks went to the straws in the ground and we're relying on that. So maybe you're below your, 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 your glide path. And every five years, the state's going to go back and kind of do these pseudo audits where they're going to say, um, are, are you doing what you said you were going to do? 
and kind of pe holding people accountable to that. Um, but uh, as that happens and kind of the, the meat of the legislation begins to take hold, there's going to be a lot of challenges for growers in areas that don't have um, sufficient surface water. And, you know, in my opinion, that's going to be one of the larger factors to kind of alleviate the current supply situation that we're in. I don't foresee, you know, barring some kind of uh, technological advance in irrigation, I don't foresee us having the same amount of acres 10 years from now as we do today. And as a matter of fact, I think we're going to have a lot less. And in your scenario where you're laying that out, I mean, that's what makes this so incredibly challenging, right? For the areas that have had sustained drought and they had worked in a certain level of production uh, projections as they figured out that glide path, like you talked about to 2040, that could be a sub uh, substantial change, whether it affected maybe their surface water isn't what it once was. And you're like, uh-oh. Now you got to readjust your water budgets because you're, you, you know, this was this is where your water levels need to be. Yes, absolutely. And on top of that, you know, we had a really, really wet year last year, and we're starting off yeah. with some, some heavy rains in Southern California this year. Um, had the Lake Corcoran fill back up. It's the kind of the one point in time was the largest lake I think west of the Mississippi. It is now there, um, and I, it devastated kind of the ground farmers in and around the area. So um, what does that do for aquifers? Now that's got a clay bottom at, at that lake, but but still the water that was necessary to fill that up, mm -hmm. um, you know, how 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 were uh, irrigation districts, were they able to capitalize on that, bank more water, um, put more water into the ground to kind of replenish some aquifers? And, and, you know, you've got these ebbs and flows. And so everybody's trying to do their best to make sure that they can capture as much uh, as feasible. Uh, under, because you got to you got to get prepared for these new circumstances with this new legislation. Uh, I believe early on uh, you mentioned the NACREF, um, uh numbers, and if so, if you look at uh, those fourth quarter numbers are out and been out for a couple of weeks, and so now you've had time to look through some of these. What is it? What are kind of the things that really jump out at you at these trends? Well, I've got I've got them kind of right in front of me, and uh, you know the the total farmland index, which. You can bifurcate the index in, in a lot of ways. You've got annual, which is stuff that you plant every year, row, uh, row crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, et cetera. And then you've got the permanent where, you know, you're going to plant it, harvest it every year, but you don't, you don't plant it every year, it's permanent crops. Um, total farmland returns were just under 5% with income being around 3.3 and capital being the basis. But annual crops or row crops were... 10.2% return, whereas permanent crops were negative 2.88. So you've had this divergence. And I mean, you can go back to the five-year annualized returns and annual crops uh, over the past five years, you know, you best a dollar in there, it gets compounded at 8.79%. Um, if you're able to reinvest everything, you know, based on some assumptions. So eight over five-year period, 8.79% is the return to annual crop lands. And permanent cropland had been 1.79%. Uh, That's a, the, the five-year annualized returns. If you go back since inception, which is back to 1991, annual crops are about 10% and permanent crops are about 10.5%. So you got about a 50 basis points spread there. And what this kind of shows is, I mean, the last five years, you know, based on some 
abstract uh, you know time periods that I put together here. Uh, the last five years have really been underperformed for for permanent crops, especially relative to to row crops. Um, but you, you back it up to the beginning, and it's like you know at one point in time that really strong returns were coming from <laughs> from permanent crops that are still kind of exceeding row crops, um, but not in the recent future or not in the, the near term that hasn't been the case. So. Um, also, if you look at kind of these almond and pistachio indices, you'll see some large reductions in capital values. Almonds lost uh, about 13% in capital values across the board for the index. Pistachios lost 10 point, uh, call it 10.4%. Um, uh, even wine grapes were down 2% in capital values. Citrus, 2.5%. So, uh, you know, kind of what we've talked about with the dollar and the the supply response, uh, and more supply and the COVID hiccups with the supply chain have really been putting pressure on long term expectations. I'm an economist, and I think yeah. you see capital values falling. That's that's based off of in income expectations or interest rates, right? So we've had we've had rising interest rates, which have cut into farmers. Uh, you know, if you're if you're using debt to finance your working capital, cut into margin in that way too. So, um, that's kind of what that those are kind of what stick out to me. Um, and the directly operated permanent crop land uh, posted a negative five percent total return. Um, that's that's the largest negative uh, in terms of magnitude, the largest negative return posted since uh, inception. Um, it's the first time pistachios have had a negative return. Their total return was 5.6. By the way, pistachios yielded 5% income. So while prices have gone down for pistachios, they still haven't, uh, they're still above, you know, it's still in the green. If you go back to their inception, which I think is either 2001 and 2006, I can't remember. It doesn't go back to two, 1991. But since inception returns for pistachios, uh, income is 16.82%. So, you know, there have been, uh, stellar performance there in the long term, but it's, uh, you know, for the supply issues and stuff that we've got going on now, it's it's been attenuated quite a bit. So as you look at those, some of those permanent numbers you highlighted, is there any reason to think that this trend won't continue the next year or two longer? Yeah, I would definitely say, um, you know, it's some factors that can make these returns revert back to kind of a long-term sustainable, uh, you know, sustain higher income is going to be, um, well, the Sigma legislation, again, that, that we talked about, you're going to have, um, if you have a, a reduction in acreage, you're going to have a reduction in supply and less supply can uh, help support prices. Also, if you have uh, the dollar revert lower, that will be beneficial. Um, for prices, especially with the nut crops, because we export a considerable amount of those. Um, and, you know, if you have some normalcy and the uh, uh, with political interactions with, with some ma major, major consumer <laughs> nations, that would also benefit us as well. Um, so kind of undoing everything that's happened since 20, 2020, let's say, um, would be beneficial. I mean, as you as you broaden this out and, you know, you mentioned politically, but What's happening in D.C. is frequently kind of a train wreck here, right? I mean, you can't you don't look to Congress for stability, even no. though our country looks to Congress for stability <laughs> because they need stability out of here. And you look at the farm bill, they couldn't get that done last year. 
And so they've temporarily extended it, but that does have so many different implications for the economy writ large. So how much does that instability play out here? I mean, it does play out. I, I would say we're used to working in the in, in, in an unstable environment. <laughs> uh, we, we, you know, the tariffs were a bit of a shock um, because you kind of knew as soon as those went up that they would be countervailing duties imposed on us. Um, but we also, in the U.S., we also have strong farm policy. Um, and um, they most areas do a good job of representing farmers. So uh, if there is something egregious that happens or legislation that's going to come through that will be, you know, uh, largely impactful, um, voices are heard. I'll say that. Much. So maybe we don't see such extreme measures enacted. Um but certainly there are some issues, but given the size of the agricultural economy, there are some issues that, you know, um, leave us out in the uh, in the cold. And, and you know, also foreign countries know that uh, if they were to cut off ex exports from from the U.S. ag exports, that cuts deep into rural population. And that has implications for politicians. So they can use that to their advantage in trying to negotiate. And. I mean, it's 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 very, very interesting, the dynamics and how everything plays out. But one thing I could say is that we we are used to the instability. <laughs> I think most farmers are you, you throw in the political instability with with pro, uh, production agriculture risk and every year is a new year. Of the uh, when you're talking to current clients, prospective clients, what are most people what are people asking you about most right now? You know, I think it's kind of what what you you brought you kind of touched on. Are we is there gonna be some sort of reversion? Um, why are what's gonna make returns normalized to a higher level? Um, and also there to be fair, there's been a lot of questions about why not just continue to invest in row crops versus permanent crops, um, because they've done so well. And uh, you know. Largely, you have to kind of look and 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 think about how the the permanent crop markets are adjusting to the current set of circumstances, the opportunity set that's available that really, to be honest, hasn't hasn't become available in quite some time. There's some properties coming up to market that we probably wouldn't see if if we weren't underneath such distressed up uh, situation. Um, so. You know, given kind of that opportunity set and the the outlook and implications of of Sigma, and then again, kind of benefits that would happen if we did have a mean reversion down lower in the dollar and some uh, some some continued supply chain normalcy, you know those implications um, the u s on, on on farmers it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna yeah. be really beneficial. I'm sorry, I got some somebody coming up to the door right now. I got some dogs barking. My apologies. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, well, hey, we appreciate the we appreciate the deep level discussion on this. Uh, uh, fun to catch up with you as you follow so many so many trends across our state and internationally. So really appreciate the time. Yes, hey, Dave, anytime. It's been a pleasure.